welcome back to the Prairie Pod, episode two, season three. Mike, how are you today, buddy? Hey, Megan, I'm doing wonderful. How are you? It's a beautiful summer day out there, you know. <laughs> it's a beautiful day. It, we're in Minnesota. What day isn't it beautiful? Well, I agree. Many people don't, you know. Um, mid midwinter kind of weather. I I don't know, but anyway, I am I'm very happy to be here. I'm very happy to be uh, to be talking more about water today it's kind of a new thing for me um, well it's not new because we th- look there's a I'm, plan going on here so we started with mussels and now we're going to talk about their streams that they live in prairie oh, streams genius did, See, you, did you come up with this plan I, yeah i'm a planner believe it or not i have ideas about how things will work <laughs> so hmm. today's all about well getting done. our feet wet which you know no, it could be literally because it is beautiful outside, mm-hmm. but we're still infected with muscle mania from last episode. So we decided we're going to learn a little bit more about where these little beasties live. And we're going to describe some prairie stream restoration techniques. And we're with two fantastic people know. in the state of Minnesota to talk about this. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Luther. I'm Luther Odland with the river ecology unit. And, uh, my career has been uh, studying uh, rivers, both uh, in terms of the things that live there and the uh, physical processes that, that form them. Uh, currently, I'm uh, largely engaged in restoring rivers. River Ecology Unit with the Department of Natural Resources, right? Correct. Okay. Yes. And we had to reschedule this podcast because he's in demand. Like, he's so mm-hmm. busy that we were like, oh, man, when when are we even going to find him when he's not in a river? So we're really glad that you stepped out for a little bit to talk with us today. And we also have Brooke. You want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Brooke Hawker, also with the DNR, Division of Ecological and Water Resources, and I'm the Southern Region Clean Water Legacy Specialist. I work on... Um, just field aspects of monitoring, assessment, restoration projects here in the, the southern part of the state. Nice. So you're also always in a stream, pretty much. Usually. <laughs> so, Brooke, your job is mainly, it mainly takes place within the prairie region of the state, right? Right. Yeah. Luther, is yours more statewide? or? Yeah, we, we uh, work uh, in every corner of the state. So, okay. see quite a range of conditions. Prairie and forest. Okay. And- Everything yeah. in between. Yeah. I like it. Let's jump right in. I'm ready. We have a lot to unpack. Jump right in? Was that a was that a pun? No, I wasn't oh, trying oh. to do it. Just go with the flow, Mike. <laughs> oh my <laughs> Watch out for a riffle. No, it's a run. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Brooke. Give us an overview of Prairie Streams in Minnesota. So we wanna hear the good, the bad, the ugly here. What's going on with them? So I'm part of a three-person team. Uh, we work with the state's watershed approach to assess, assess the health of, uh, of prairie streams and um, rivers here in our area. And um, so as far as stream stability, we find that many of our streams are incised. We've had a great deal of channelization that's happened over time. So. Brooke, what incised mean? Oh, sorry. Incised means that... Um, it's it's deep. It's downcut, and it's not able to assess its um, access its floodplain gotcha. as often as it should. During so it's like flood deep flows. and narrow than it sh- narrower than it should be. Yeah, it could even be too wide. Oh, hmm. yeah, nice. But okay. typically, prairie streams there there are more narrow, and they're deep, and they're very meandering or sinuous, and uh, they have access to their floodplain in that riparian zone. Very frequently. 
Got it. Keep going. I mean, what's the overall trend with with water quality in the state? Well, especially in this area, some some areas of the state are doing quite well, but this area, especially the Minnesota River Basin, we have elevated levels of uh, sediment, nutrients. Um, we see more flashy flows. Um, and we, we also have found that uh, a lot of the sediment is actually coming from in the channel, near channel sources. As our streams are becoming more unstable, we have a lot more bank and bed erosion. Oh, I don't like to hear that. Hopefully, there's going to be some things that we can do about that. So tell us, these are obviously, this is part of their condition, right? But it's also part of the challenge. So elaborate a little bit on what's kind of causing this. Well, streams go through this natural process, and they, they strive for this equilibrium so they can move the sediment and, and water through the system. And so, uh, you know, what's causing this is a combination of things. We've had uh, land use changes in our watersheds, and we have also, uh, uh, the climate change is also something we can talk about, too. Uh, I'm interested in that. So climate change, we're talking about changing flood patterns, right? Or uh, changing precipitation patterns. More frequent, heavy precipitation events. Yeah, we could. We can. Yeah, that's one component of it. The intensity of the storms. Also, um, you know, we have warmer winter nighttime temperatures too, mm -hmm. and um, we we see more of that base flow in the winter than we used to, and we also have um, more drainage in our watersheds, and some of those tile lines run much longer into the winter mm -hmm. time too. Mm -hmm. So we've got a large volume of water that's moving when it didn't used to move, basically. Right, right. And it's just that cumulative effect, um, and basically more water is going through our rivers now than what was historically occurring. So it can't keep up. And then if it doesn't have a floodplain, it's natural. It's, it's evolving to these changes, okay. and as this happens, um, there's erosion and so on as we, we this channel tries to find a new stable pattern and profile and um, dimensions. Hmm. That's interesting. I didn't know that it was evolving and adapting with it. That's kind of cool to hear. Yeah, but there's mm -hmm. there's ways that we can help it too. We can, uh, spe speaking of why we're here today to talk about stream restoration, um, there's many opportunities to restore prairie streams. Um, and then there's also ways that we can um, use more passive approaches too and let the, you know, give it appropriate buffer riparian zones and let the stream adjust where it can too. And this is where I always like to mention deep roots. You know, I can't help myself, but if in some of you those buffers, those roots, I know, yeah. we're, oh gosh, I can't, <laughs> I don't even want to go down a root tangent here, but if some of those buffers had deep majestic prairie roots in them, majestic, we'd, argue, majestic. Yeah. we'd arguably be doing a better job of trapping sediment and nutrients because we're talking about roots that go down 13 feet in some cases. So that's mm -hmm. going to be a lot more than some of our, you know, non-native cool season grasses that are more like sod and don't have a, a great depth to them. So I'm a big fan putting prairie roots all over the place. I know you are. I know. I, you're, you're convincing me. I'm coming around. <laughs> you're coming around. I think Brooke likes prairie roots. I mean, I no, she's smiling. She's down with it. Definitely. <laughs> They're amazing. Should we move on and talk, start talking about restoration? Yeah, let's jump into that. So, okay, what are, you You touched on this a little bit with the condition, but sort of summarize for us, what are the primary problems that make a stream unhealthy and therefore trigger us to know that we would need to restore it? Brooke, you tell us this. 
So the primary things, um, we can talk about that unstable state where, um, you know, we, we have this excess sediment. We don't have the right channel shape and channel dimensions. Um, also, we, we lose that habitat, which is so important for the aquatic species. Um, riffle and pool sequence um, within that, that meandering stream. I've always wondered this, so I pretend that I know these things, but I deal on land so much that I don't necessarily know all of the good definitions for this. Describe to me the difference between a riffle, a run, and a pool. So the difference is that on the outside bend, you're going to see this, this deeper pool, and then you come around the bend, and you see this riffle, which is more of the the cobble and the small gravel and so on. And, and you might not even really see it in prairie streams because there's such low slope. But mm. that's going to be a shallower part of the stream. It's more of the hydraulic control. Um, and then the riffle's going to run into the pool, and then it comes into a glide and back down through the riffle. So it's just this sequence and this undulating stream bottom. I, I wish I had a graphic right now. So <laughs> they kind of like a speed bump in the stream because it's trying to slow things down or give me like give me an analogy here. So I know you're like so you guys can't see Brooke, but she's gesturing with her hands and it's really good and she's painting the picture for us, but we're just trying to paint the picture for you because you can't see your hands. <laughs> so we're trying to help you understand a little bit about yeah, this. Yeah, could I defer to Luther? Yeah, you can defer to Luther. <laughs> Well, uh, you're right. Riffles are where you tend to see the rockier habitats, so it's more roughness on the bed of the stream that 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 do uh, cause some resistance. Um, the the pattern also uh, uh, slows that down. A more sinuous river is is has a lower slope than a straightened one, mm. so that's a, a big deal in terms of stability of the stream. So lower slope is good. That's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the stream will reach its natural equilibrium um, by, over time, uh, uh, building those meanders and, and, and reaching that equilibrium and that connection to the floodplain. Um, and then there's processes associated with that where the, the sediment deposited on these point bars at the bends are regrading the floodplain and reconnecting it to the floodplain. So those processes can't be overlooked in, in, uh, when we talk about restoration. Uh, tell us more about what objectives you're trying to achieve when you're, when you're restoring a prairie stream. Well, f one of the big first steps is to identify the problem. Mm -hmm. And to do that, just like a, a doctor uh, analyzing a patient, you have to have some understanding of the system. So there's some groundwork and, and data collection that, that go into that. Sometimes the symptoms of a problem are real obvious. We're just extensively eroded banks or, mm -hmm. or uh, lacking uh, fish diversity, uh, lacking populations, um, those sorts of things that, that might uh, make you think there's something wrong. But then we have to delve into, well, how'd this get messed up? Mm -hmm. uh, Brooke mentioned the, the uh, um, land landscape uh, changes mm -hmm. where we don't have as much prairie. We've also got climate patterns that are training uh, wetter. And uh, so many of our, our uh, prairie streams have more than doubled the channel forming discharge that they would normally have. Really? 
So when that happens, the stream has to get bigger, mm-hmm. the pattern has to get bigger, and ultimately the valley has to even get bigger. Um, the other, other uh, big issue in streams is, is the lack of connectivity. Uh, rivers are uh, like highways for biodiversity. Not just uh, fish and mussels, but a lot of the terrestrial species will use those same corridors to get from place to place. And they need to do that because, well, low-gradient streams have good pool habitat and that kind of thing. They may lack the spawning habitat that are associated with the steeper reaches of river. So, for instance, in the Prairie region, the Prairie Coteau is where we find some of those steeper river reaches. And, and as the streams come down into the Minnesota Valley, and those are areas that really need to be connected to these other reaches of river um, this may be a dumb question. How do they get disconnected? Uh, dam construction is, is one of the big ones uh, because they, they uh, block these migrations. And uh, um, yeah, undersized culverts are another one where mm-hmm. velocities can be too high for, for fish to get through. Just an example of that, uh, here we're near the Cottonwood River, and it's the watershed where I, I grew up. And uh, that entire watershed was lacking uh, fish diversity because we had a dam right here in town, the Flandreau Dam, that blocked that entire watershed. Um, so it was due to one dam? Yeah, hmm. primarily. And uh, there are 25 species of fish that were in the little segment downstream of Flandreau Dam, hmm. but didn't exist anywhere upstream. Wow. Uh, in 1995, we removed that dam and 23 of those 25 species came back very quickly to the watershed, dramatically increasing the biodiversity of that whole watershed. Hmm. Literally 2,000 miles of stream in the Cottonwood watershed. That increased their biodiversity by about 35% after that dam was removed. Hmm. That's incredible. And we know diversity makes the world go round. We talk about that all the time on the podcast. Is that how you feel? I'm that's always, how I I'm feel. Kind of confused that's about that. oh my, get on the boat. <laughs> this is this is how I feel. It's both true if you're a prairie. It's true if you're a stream. It's true if you're a person. Diversity mm. makes the world go round. It makes the world more interesting. I agree. It I makes just, like, it healthier. You a hard time about it. Just oh yeah. man, I'm on the soapbox yeah. and I'm not going to get off of it for a long time. If you do not accept what I'm saying, oh please. <laughs> Diversity is so important. You know what's funny that you mentioned that dam. I actually, this is a brief aside, Mm. last winter I was giving a snowshoe hike to our castle learning group, which is uh, continued education for mostly retired folks. And uh, one of the gentlemen there used to work for DNR. He didn't identify himself that way, you know, and um, it was his first time ever snowshoeing. And then we, after... (laughs) After we made him fall many times into the <laughs> snow, he then told us um, that he was there when that dam was removed. He used to work at that park, and he talked about seeing the change and how incredible it was. And then we were like, that's fascinating. What, could we interview you about this? Could we talk to you a little bit more about it? And he was like, oh, sure, sure. And then we asked him the follow-up question. Do you think you're ever going to come snowshoeing with us again? And he just kind of did a real polite <laughs> Minnesota slow head nod, like, no, probably not. <laughs> but he did say he'd meet us for coffee, so, I mean, that was a win. <laughs> but was, anyway. Yeah. Luther, I was glad you uh, uh, made the connection to wildlife, uh, in particular terrestrial wildlife, because I mean, the connection with aquatic wildlife is fairly mm-hmm. obvious. 
But these prairie restor- or I'm sorry, stream restorations are also important for the species that occur in the prairie that we care about, right? Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen following restorations where we have uh, um, a lot of wildlife. They'll just follow that corridor because mm-hmm. you have the, the uh, semi-aquatic birds, the, the mammals. Uh, sure, all the reptiles and amphibians. That kind of thing. Yeah. But uh, um, deer, uh, the, the mm. fawns will be, be often <laughs> walked walk restored streams or where I look up and I see fawns popping out of every <laughs> every bend, and and they need that water supply too, mm-hmm. and in uh, the wetlands that are tied to that kind of that kind of thing. Sure. Well, when we look at the Minnesota River as a whole, this is this is a big part of my job is looking at rare species. It's one of the, I call it one of the last frontiers in southern Minnesota where it has an incredible amount of diversity that it still retains. And so it's an area that I look at when I see all of the features that occur there still that I'm like, okay, we need to put some focus and energy into this. And there are a lot of people who are putting focus and energy into it, which you guys are as well. I think it's, it's, it's well-documented riparian corridors tend to be more diverse than anywhere else in the landscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and rivers generally are are uh, some of the most diverse uh, ecosystems on the yep. planet. Um, even though they're a small percentage of the water area in right. the world, there are almost as many species in rivers and streams as there are in the ocean. Hmm. And so I didn't per, know that for the area that they comprise, the diversity is much much higher than the ocean is. Sure. And the challenge, of course, is that there. There's the, the demand to use that ecosystem is also very high. Exploit it in ways that may yeah, and be a problem for some of the species. We haven't we treated our, our streams very well. Yeah. <laughs> We've used them for sewers. We have channelized them. About half of our streams have been straightened in Minnesota mm-hmm. and much higher in the prairie region. Um, and we built these barriers that have fragmented them. So we... we uh, um, Eliminate those migrations that are key to a lot of a lot of wildlife and and fish. All right, tell us a little bit more about some of the like specific techniques that you would use if you're starting a stream restoration process. Yeah, well, first of all, again, identifying the problem and then deciding, well, how can we address this? Because it's a lot easier to uh, mess something up. Than it is to correct. <laughs> so, so when when we have these inside streams with disconnected floodplains, part of it is getting the meander pattern back, but you also have this grade difference, so that the rivers become incised, which means their their floods are contained within the channel, uh-huh. and and a lot of energy is contained in the channel rather than dissipating into the floodplain. Um, where that water would be stored. Mm. So um, uh, sometimes we have to bring the grade of the stream back up. Sometimes we can do that and and, uh, reconnect the floodplain that way. The other way is to bring the floodplain down, but that becomes very expensive because it's a lot of material. Either way, you're talking about lots of bulldozer work, basically. And in the long term, um, having that pattern is what maintains the connection between the stream and the floodplain because of this constant regrading as these meanders migrate down valley and, and both erode and deposit that eroded material on the floodplain. 
Well, and I imagine, too, I'm, I'm sort of connecting the dots here, thinking big picture. If you don't address the root cause, you could spend a lot of time and energy into restoring the stream. But if you don't address the larger watershed problems, um, whether it's land use changes or other things, then it's still going to go back to how it was. It's like a Band-Aid on the system. That's, right? that's exactly right. That's where a lot of my work comes in, too, on the front end as we work with partners on watershed assessments. It's really important since it's such a big undertaking. Um, we're not just t- talking about hard armoring a bank. We're talking about bringing back those ecological functions and actually moving toward a stable stream. And so we go through a lot of assessment work and prioritization and then, you know, look at risk and cost benefit, um, kind of quantify the ecological uplift and so on so that... Um, we can really justify and make a good decision on where where it makes sense um, and, and where we have the, the willing um, landowners and the partnerships that we need. Um, it, it often takes a really, I've learned that it takes um, a really diverse large team to uh, engage in these types of projects from engineers to ecologists and planners and so on. Right. And then you have to have the buy-in from the folks who live there too, right, to make changes on on farm or on their homes or wherever they need to do it to help slow that the erosion and sediment and all these other yep, things. Right? Exactly. One of the other, uh, a different kind of problem is, is these old dams where the reservoir is filled with sediment. And so mm-hmm. in this case, instead of incising, we've graded the stream and, and buried it in sediment. Mm-hmm. Oh. So, so uh, in some cases we have really deep sediments. Uh, an example of that was was uh, a recent project in in Orinoco where where we uh, had 18 feet of accumulated sediment, so we had to bring the river, uh, the Zumbro River, back up to connect uh, with the floodplain, which was now that new uh, accumulated sediment, and we're able to do that by building rapids and riffles and, and stepping it up. Similar project we did in the southwest in, in Blue Mountain State Park where uh, we had a reservoir full of sediment, the dam failed, and we brought that river or that, that stream back up to, to connect to its floodplain and then re-meandered it within those, uh, those accumulated sediments to make a habitat similar to the, the more quality streams that Brooke would, would find in, in their surveys. Yeah, we try to work on um, these restorations are based off what we call reference reach streams. So kind of okay. copying that, learning from nature and what, what's out there that's working well, um, what has these features. And then we can survey all those different parameters and then base our design off that based on the same stream type and valley type combination. It's fascinating. It's the same thing we try to do with prairies. So I would imagine somebody asked me, uh, I got an email the other day and somebody said, when do you think that we'll have all the answers on how to do prairie restoration? And I said, well, you can ask the ecologist 10,000 years after me and they may still not know. <laughs> they just started laughing. I feel that way too. Because it's so complicated. Like it's so complex. And we're, I mean, here you guys are like, you're super smart. You're incredible, talented scientists. And I know like, I don't know, I just think about myself. There's so much I still don't know. And I've been studying prairies for my entire career and hope to continue for the entire rest of my career. And there's still so many connections and things that are going on that I don't fully understand. I just hope I'm giving 
when I do prairie restoration, I hope I'm making the right choices and I rely, like you guys said, reference reach. I really like that. Mm -hmm. I rely on the the native prairie to try to help me fill in the pieces of what's going on. And when you speak of the prairie and the depth of roots that, that they have, uh, that's another key step in restoration, obviously, is, mm -hmm. is getting that riparian zone reestablished. The, the trouble is uh, prairie grasses and, and other vegetation take time to get that root mass down deep. Mm -hmm. um, root volume ratios in, in the, the soil profile for a lot of these prairie plants will continue to increase over a, a period of 20 years where it's a tremendous length of root. I mean, we're talking hundreds of kilometers of, of root in a yep. meter-wide <laughs> profile right. of soil. So you can imagine how much, uh, well, even carbon storage, um, mm -hmm. when we think about climate change, can occur in a prairie. You're leading us right into our, we're going to do another, this season, our last, we're ending the season with our roots episode. So you're just... You're ahead of the times. You're ahead of the times. Yeah. Megan's favorite topic, though. It is kind one, of my favorite topic, favorite so I can't yeah. stop talking about that and bees and other things. Anyway. Can anyway. I just uh, ask, I mean, clarify, avoiding Band-Aid solutions and getting at solutions that solve the ultimate problems that we're facing with streams is one of them uh, restoring prairie or at least uh, uh, maintaining grasslands in, in the corridors adjacent to streams. Is it safe to say that's a key thing to do? Yeah, I think that's a key thing to do. Yeah, okay, we're, we're looking at that that bigger picture of bringing that resiliency and the health to the, the stream and um, that adjacent riparian corridor too. We're just we're constantly looking for uh, management actions that have that have dual benefits or overlapping benefits. So if if we can do something that provides like habitat for grassland birds, mm -hmm. and then at the same time provide provide uh, some stability for prairie streams and and also providing uh, better water quality and water storage and all these other things associated point. with water and I want to say something that's real weird for me me to say you're it's gonna freak you out a little bit Mike <laughs> I know but I would also argue oh gosh it hurts to say it it's more than just prairie because a what? lot of I know <laughs> this is weird where I'm going here but when we talk about prairie, sometimes we're talking about individual prairies, but we're also talking about the landscape as a whole. And the prairie landscape, I know, it has different ecosystems within it. There is certainly the prairie ecosystem, but oh, part of that prairie. is huh. yeah. trees and forests and different things and wetlands. And so it's about making those you bigger bet. connections with all of those different ecological features on the land. So I know it's weird to hear me say it, but <laughs> the, sometimes trees are important too. No, it's well I said it here well first. But, well, oh. well, one aspect of that is, is uh, trees on, on bigger rivers, the banks tend to get higher. And the difference between prairie uh, corridors and, and wooded corridors is that trees will have mm. deeper massive roots deeper in the soil profile. So on these bigger rivers, uh, trees tend to do better in, in holding the, the banks. And if you look at the original surveys of much of the prairie region, many of the larger rivers had this wooded corridor that mm -hmm. extended up into the prairie and, right. and provided a, a different see. kind of habitat uh, along that stream. Thank you. You said that much more succinctly. That was the point I was trying to make. But there's <laughs> there's multiple things going on in the landscape. It's not just all prairie all the time, even though it is in my world. But 
One other component too, we talk about recent restoration projects at Blue Mountain State Park. So um, uh, an oxbow, so those are kind of like part of the abandoned older channel. Um, we have some some rare species, uh, the Topeka shiner, for example, that really rely on that habitat. Federally so, endangered fish, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about the importance of being connected with the floodplain, having the wetlands, but then also there's these these oxbows that provide this unique habitat for species. So at Blue Mounds, you you intentionally created these oxbows. You intentionally created these little pools that basically yeah. sim- simulate an it oxbow. It was a partnership with the Fish and Wildlife Service, and there were seven of them created then with the larger restoration project. And they provide habitat for the Topeka shiner. Yep, they yeah. like that off-channel. Nice. But another part of that was we put a very sinuous pattern back into the stream so that over time those oxbows will naturally form Hmm. and those meanders cut off as they naturally do in in meandering streams. Very cool. Because one of the challenges, we talked about some of the water quality concerns at the beginning. So we have all the more sediment, excess sediment moving through the system and we have a floodplain which is great because that can deposit the the sediment and nutrients but then these oxbows are filling in faster than than we think they did in the past. Right. And part of, okay, so just taking it to thinking about economics here for a minute. This might be a tangent, but it just I'm looking at a picture of a person paddling, and so it just seems appropriate that we would bring this in. True. When you restore the stream and you get back to this kind of meandering pattern, not only is it healthier, in theory, hopefully, that's the goal, right? But that wouldn't it also be a little bit more interesting because it's more natural and you're sort of going, I don't Better know. Better for recreation. You're Better saying. for recreation, yeah. yeah because, mm-hmm. I mean, let's be honest. If you're just in a channel and you're just going straight, like, that's yeah. not that's <laughs> not as much fun. Yeah, not a big, a lot of canoeists uh, target uh, ditches. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't often see people <laughs> they, they, in that ditch with a canoe. Don't tend to be that interesting. But the other other part of that too is that's that's broad is is the the water quality benefits of that. Um, we we've actually measured the turbidity of these prairie streams that have agricultural watersheds. They have a high suspended uh, sediment load, and, and they're very turbid. As they f- go through these prairie grasses, the the particles actually adhere to the the grasses. And within, in this one case, within a, a few hundred yards, this went from turbidity impaired to uh, uh, crystal clear water. Oh, my gosh. Uh, as, it, as it moved into a big wetland basin and eventually back into the stream. But as it came back into the stream, we measured turbidity. It was the full tube transparency. In other words, you could see a meter down, whereas in the upper part, you could see about two centimeters. <laughs> so, so to clarify, again, turbidity means the, the amount of sediment that's suspended in the water, basically? How it, dirty the water turbidity is? Turbidity would be the opposite of clarity. Yep, so yeah. if, if it's turbid, you can't see through it. Yeah, and the tubes you guys use to assess that are really fun. Like, I've gotten to use them a couple of times, and they make sense, right? You look down into it, and you're like, I can't see. Or you look down, and you're like, I can see! Like, it's pretty common yeah. sense. The other, other part of that is the nutrient loading that comes with fertilizer and, and uh, other types of runoff, uh, sewage and that kind of thing. Um, and, and as that water flows through the, the prairie, the, those plants will take up those nutrients and, and uh, it's measurable effects on, on water quality. Whereas in a ditch, 
those those uh, nutrients are confined. They're moving very quickly into the bigger river, and, and and those nutrients will make it clear to the Gulf of Mexico, where we have a dead zone yeah. of anoxic ocean due right. to largely uh, nutrients that are applied in the Midwest. Gotcha. Well, while you're talking about this, it just at the chord that strikes the most sense in my mind, at least, is you're talking about how important it is to make sure that the river itself is connected, but part of that connectivity is also making sure that the landscape around it is connected and so that you have, I mean, it just, as you're describing this and I'm thinking about, okay, so just a little bit down the stream, it gets clear if you have the prairie grasses on the edge, it's really about making those connections with what habitat we put adjacent to the stream and then also how it's connected on the land as a whole. The land and water is a whole system together. You can't just look at one individually. You have to look at the whole system, the whole watershed. And Absolutely. All. And one of the ironic things about the channel straightening, the straightening of rivers, a lot of it was done for flood control so we could move the water off more quickly. Uh, and it does the opposite. But, is what well, if you, you live downstream, that's not, not a good thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, and, and that's a big reason why our floods are, are bigger as well. The, the conveyance off the land and the, the water mm -hmm. moves much more quickly. So for these downstream communities, they get flooded worse and worse, even though you may have uh, you know, moved the water off more quickly in the headwaters. It's uh, impacting uh, municipalities downstream. As they say, it all flows downstream. Indeed. Do <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean there, Mike? Okay, tell me, so this is complex stuff. I mean, yeah. it's complicated. I know. It's, it's stimulating, though. It's much <laughs> stimulated. Okay, mm -hmm. tell me ideal, like, what is the end look that we're going for? And I know you've sort of mentioned some of the parts and pieces, but so if I were to go out and say, this stream is healthy, this stream is not healthy, what are the key things that I'm looking for to make that determination? Well, one, one thing, I like to fish. And, <laughs> yeah. and for a lot of these watersheds that are, are fragmented and sized, um, the, bio, the diversity is lower, but the, also the game fish don't tend to be there. Mm. Um, so, so that's one of those obvious things that you'll, you'll see when you go there. Um, another is in a connected system where we have that floodplain connectivity, you won't tend to see the rapid erosion rates um, because a lot of that energy is held in the floodplain. So you see uh, um, better water quality, um, more diverse uh, uh, biota, not only the fish and mussels, but the, the uh, turtles. terrestrial. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, turtles are an interesting one because they, they uh, lay their eggs in eroded riverbanks. There you go. So okay. if we just do a Band-Aid approach where we're saying, mm -hmm. oh, my God, there's an eroded riverbank, we got to armor that, um, we're actually impeding the process that the river needs to go through to get more stable. I see. So we don't want to be just doing Band-Aids that yeah. are symptomatic. We want to get the underlying root causes of the problem. I think about kingfishers, belted kingfishers nesting in, the, in river banks, and just lots of other species that... Yeah, Use this that, is the second time this process. week you've yeah. talked about kingfishers. <laughs> no, I just love them, <laughs> Megan. I like kingfishers. Fine. I'm surprised you're not wearing a kingfisher shirt today. <laughs> I do. They're kind of loud and obnoxious. You know? <laughs> that must be why we're friends. <laughs> One of the, it's all making sense to me there you now. Go. Yeah. One of my coolest photos is of a kingfisher on a prairie stream that we restored. Nice. It had been a legal ditch. 
And uh, I was able to zoom in close enough to identify the fish species that was in the kingfisher's mouth. Really? <laughs> That's so cool. It wasn't a, uh, it was actually a, a juvenile white sucker. But okay. <laughs> it wasn't a federally endangered one. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. But that's part of it, too. <laughs> it is part of it. It's a yep. circle. Yep. circle of life. Okay, I cut you off. So, it broke me make sure that I get this right. So we're looking for habitat. We're looking for fish diversity. We're probably looking for buffers that the stream has some vegetation next to it, right? A meander, uh, not incised. That would be good. Water quality. What am I missing? Well, just back to that. If the stream is in uh, more of an equilibrium with the right um, channel dimensions and shape and pattern, then you won't see as much erosion. And also mm. we are getting, we talked about the more intense rain events and more flooding and so on. Mm-hmm. And so these channels that um, are more stable or more in this dynamic equilibrium are, are better, to, better to handle these bigger events. Um, you don't just see it just so blown out um, after the, the gotcha. flows go down. Because they're healthier. Yeah, yeah, more resiliency, better better stability. That's, that's So they can handle of, some of these big precipitation events. Yeah. Better. I guess. Then, Which is yeah. going to be hugely important because, like Luther mentioned, yeah. we're just the predictions for Minnesota are that we're going to get wetter. And so that's not uh, good news for some folks if they're trying yep. to figure out if they're already struggling with some of these climate issues that we're seeing. So we're going to have to get, I don't know, work smarter mm-hmm. to figure all this out so that we can deal with that. Because I don't think the, the answer is that we just sho- keep shoving the water downstream. So we're going to have to figure out a way to solve all these hard problems and another related problem is that that these unstable streams cost us money because they, they blow out Good roads the uh, people's houses will fall in the stream <laughs> because because uh, um, this, this is all out of whack and and uh, so that's a, a human cost just an example of that in in western Iowa where 80 percent of the streams have been altered uh, by channelization um, they had massive uh, incision of their streams, uh, uh, and this was in the 90s when they estimated those damages just in western Iowa, just to uh, infrastructure like roads and crossings at over a billion dollars. Um, wow. Just because of unstable streams. Hmm. Well, I even think last year across southern Minnesota, how we had the late snow, you know, and then we had just, it just never stopped raining. And so our farmers couldn't get in the field and we had all, you know, these fallow fields that were open to more erosion and we had all kinds of issues going on where, and I just remember all of the pictures that kept coming through of people that they thought they might've been outside of the floodplain of the Minnesota river, but clearly in it, or at least in the new floodplain because their shed is fully underwater. All you can see is like the little weather vane at the top. And so that you yeah, know that yeah. some, there's a, actually a building there. I mean, which is devastating for the people who live there, but also like you said, there's a long-term problem then if you're going to continue to be in the floodplain and we're going to continue to have these rains, it's just going to be a, systemic problem that keeps going it's a negative feedback loop that we want to break we are fortunate now with the clean water land and legacy amendment though there's a lot more collaborative um, watershed planning going on and uh, using watershed science to help us 
target and prioritize and and then you know working in the headwaters and working throughout the watershed because we talk about how it's all connected so we can slow the flow hold more uh, you know hold some of this runoff back um and just try to improve the overall health of the watershed yeah good point that's good we do a lot of good people working on these things tell us pretty quickly we'll ask this question of both of you so think about some key things that you've learned. Um, it can be from a project that you've worked on. It can just be through your career up to this point. Um, so these are like the golden tidbits that you would impart to somebody <laughs> golden else. <tidbits. laughs> golden tidbits. Like an Indian grass seed head blowing in the wind. Okay. Um, anyway, key things that you've learned that can be applied to other projects. Like what are some things that you would tell folks who are starting out and trying to figure these things out? And I know, like, to do it succinctly would be hard, but try. Luther, you go first. <laughs> well, I, 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 as a kid, I grew up on a creek, Dutch Charlie Creek, in the Cottonwood watershed. What was the name of it? Dutch Charlie. Dutch Charlie. It's named after Trapper that, that nice. I lived there. And, uh, but what I, I like to do is talk to the old timers, and, and uh, they talked about these huge runs of fish of all different species coming up that stream. And, and taking wagon loads, uh, um, some of these these old timers were mm. born in the 1800s and, and trapped in the late 1890s, and and uh, um, and I spent all my time on that same creek, and I didn't see those big runs of fish. Mm. Um, Later, I learned that <laughs> with the removal of Flandro Dam, that that same stream increased its diversity and started to get those big runs of, of fish back. Um, so that was was something that actually took me a while to fully understand. I, I remember standing below box culverts on, on the creek and, and seeing these fish trying to get over the perched culvert oh, in yeah. that creek. And I could actually catch minnows by the handful um, below that barrier because they're, they're all concentrated there trying to get past it. But so uh, when when we move that and and, uh, removing now dams around the state and we're seeing on average, um, so at these barriers, we'll see about a 40% loss of the number of species in that watershed, Mm. about 43%. After we remove that barrier, barrier, we'll see about 70% of those missing species return uh, fairly rapidly. So it's, it's very gratifying to see that ecosystem Re, 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 uh, regain its its biota. That's incredible. We learned a, a lot about that last episode too. Uh, well, I shouldn't say a lot. We learned a little bit about it with the discovery of the spectacle yeah. case. No, I learned a lot. I meant we we learned a little bit about the barriers. That's there what I mean. Go. We learned a little bit about where they were solving the mystery of the spectacle case muscle and what oh, yeah. host fish that it needs. Mm-hmm. So. And we learned how, you know, there was uh, fish species above the dam but not below it. Am I saying this wrong? Or was it below the dam but not above oh, it? I can't, it. Remember. Now, I, now I can't remember. Below the dam and not above it. There yeah. we go. I knew you'd help me out with it. <laughs> and then they solved that mystery of, oh, well, it's got to be, you know, this one. because The this other is this part of that goes. that we're discovering now is that these fish will migrate extreme distances. Um now that we have more tagged fish, every one of the muscle examples was when Lock and Dam 19 was built clear down in the southern end of Iowa. 
it, it, it into Illinois, it, it eliminated the skipjack herring, mm. which is the sole host of two mussel species. But skipjack okay. herring went clear up to Big Stone Lake historically and, and were virtually eliminated from the whole Mississippi basin upstream of Lock and Dam 19 in Keokuk, Iowa. Mm. So it has a dramatic um, effect on, on just broad spatial scales in terms of river miles. Mm. That's crazy. Brooke, uh, what is your golden tidbit? Do you have one? I feel like I'm still learning so much. <laughs> <laughs> Ask me in 20 years it's or something. something. <laughs> but, you know, I think our overall goal is restoring the process and the form and um, in the habitat, the whole, the whole big picture of everything. And so there's always constraints and challenges and you have to make adjustments. But I think... Um, We've been really lucky through partnerships and through just um, like Luther's group and mentorships and trainings that we've um, been allowed to uh, participate in. And I think that's just a big deal. It's just the, the collaborative effort that's needed to carry out these projects. You guys work together on projects? You, did you work together on Blue Mounds? Yes, we did. Yes, we did. We did. That was my first exposure really to a larger yeah. level stream restoration. And it kind of blows my mind what you guys did there. Yeah, mine too. And... It blows my mind how many different disciplines and scientists mm -hmm. and expertise were needed to make that project successful. It shouldn't blow my mind, but it was just an incredible partnership that went on there. I mean, Luther was there, Brooke was there, but then there was also the non-game Lisa Galvin and Mayer was yeah. there uh, dealing with snakes. Parks and Trails, yeah. Molly Trail Nelson was yeah. there. They're trying to figure out, oh no, the dam was a hibernacula for these snakes, and so now we got to move the snakes so the snakes don't die. That's a cool project. There, yeah. there is a super neat video that I'll see if we can share um, where Lisa and Molly are trying to keep these snakes warm and try to figure out how to create a yep. right new hibernacula for them. They're looking mm -hmm. at plans and how do you construct this and everything and then they've got their hands filled with snakes. I know, it weirds me out too. And they're, <laughs> they're just putting them in the hole so that they don't It freeze. doesn't weird me out. Yeah, it doesn't weird you out, <laughs> but oh gosh, I mean, bless them because... And now the prairie restoration we, that's occurring in that in that area. Um, it's a whole... The, the park is doing It's it. a huge partnership. We're, like it's we're, we're going to be monitoring the, the pollinator and grassland bird response in that prairie restoration. And yeah. That, that part of it is really a, a fun part of it, working with people. And sometimes the partners are different than you might think. Um, we're getting more projects um, um, proposed and, and, and implemented by drainage authorities, the ones that are responsible for the, the ditch network. Huh. And uh, we, we just have, have a, a, a watershed district in the northwest that's restoring 26 miles of a channelized uh, stream, prairie stream, um, to benefit the local farmers as well as the biodiversity and water quality of the stream. Cool. Right, because we all live here. I like it. Absolutely. And you talked about the economics of that too earlier. Okay, we have to move on to our next section. we got to throw some good science at people, right, Mike? I like throwing science at people. You bet. All right. Dan. I, mean, I mean that in a non-aggressive way. Yeah. Let's science to the literature. Science. Okay, this is the part of the podcast where we recommend a book, a blog, or a paper, and we're super lucky today because we're with two incredibly amazing people that they are going to share some of their very own research and their own talks um, that they just help spread the science, man. Mm -hmm. Luther, take it away. 
Well, we've got a, a few uh, uh, more recent uh, books uh, that are coming out. One one is through the University of Iowa Press and with the University of Minnesota um, uh, on uh, ecosystem, well, ecological restoration in the Midwest. And uh, we get into some of the prairie uh, stream restoration, the, the dam removal and that kind of thing in a chapter in that book. Uh, another one is is one we did a few years ago on on uh, reconnecting streams, uh, uh, dam removal and, and fish passage in these these uh, sorts of streams. Um, we'll have a book coming out shortly, the uh, Red River uh, uh, Red River Valley and Aspen Parklands that will get into the just the biodiversity of that system. And we have a chapter in there on, on rivers and streams and, and the biodiversity in these, these systems. Um, uh, there, there's others that uh, you can access online. One is, is this Barrier Effects uh, paper that, that we've done together, uh, um, done uh, um, statewide on, on barrier effects on barrier streams effects. and then the effects of removing those barriers on those, those watersheds. So links to all these books will be on our website. Yes, papers and books. Yep, they'll definitely be on our website. Brooke, tell us about some of the things that you use in your work. Um, Yeah, I don't have specific research or talks of my own to share, but I have a couple others that I want to just point out. Um, I've been gathering some training and reading and more interested in the stream quantification tool. It was developed by Will Harmon with Stream Mechanics. He's from Colorado. And it's used in a variety of different states, but now we have um, a manual for bringing it to Minnesota. And um, the Corps of Engineers is one that um, took a lead in bringing it and um, have been offering some trainings. So there is a mitigation piece that goes along along with it, but the stream quantification tool is important because it helps to um, document the ecological uplift and so you can compare okay. different sites. You can um, before and after a stream restoration. What does ecological uplift mean? So those those benefits, okay. right, that you're going to see so after that. a stream restoration okay. um, versus what you're going to see in a degraded stream. So it kind of helps you prioritize where to work? Yeah, from, so you, you know. look at the geomorphology, you look at the hydrology, the biology, the connectivity can be also be a factor, too. But uh, all the components that would um, play into a, a healthy stream system. Is this is it like a it's a computer program where you plug in parameters? Yeah, it, it takes some training to go through it, mm-hmm. and there's an Excel sheet and there's a manual that goes along with it. But you'll go out and you'll collect your your field data, and then you'll come up with with a scoring system once you fill out the worksheets. Well, that's great that they're Sounds adapting it to Minnesota. Very useful because yeah, yeah models are only as useful as the as the data that goes into them. So it's important to have that Minnesota data in there. Okay, give us two others. I guess one other thing too with my assessment work that we do, um, there's a a textbook called Streamer and Watershed Restoration, the guide to uh, restoring river and process and habitats. And so that's Roni and Beachy. um, And it just applies a lot to the the type of assessment work that we are doing. geomorphic assessment work and then helping us to prioritize where it makes sense to do stream restoration work. I like it. Cool. So you can be more effective overall. Oh, that's good. I feel like I'm going to have a lot of reading to do tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Not Harry Potter tonight, but stream <laughs> restoration. You don't know my life. <laughs> hey, Megan. 
Yeah, Mike? Oh, she would take a hike. I think I will take a hike. And I might take a swim, because we're talking about streams. Maybe do some fishing, you know? Maybe do some fishing. I know. We could do some river recreation, this podcast. So we're going to continue on this water theme. So, like always... We are going to introduce you to some of your incredible public lands because you are a public landowner in the state of Minnesota because you have public lands. See how that works? Okay. So Luther's going to start. Um, We made our guests do all the work, and they're going to tell us some places where we can hike or swim or fish in this case. Well, one of my favorites is is a stream that I've worked on for uh, a couple decades, and that's... uh, um, in the, the Rothsey Wildlife Management Area. It's one, that, that management area is one of the bigger, bigger tracks of prairie, and it, it's positioned along the beach ridge of, of Glacial Lake Agassiz. And part of the reason it's still native prairie is, is very wet. Mm. A lot of uh, springs coming out of that area, a lot of natural wetlands, and wetlands that were difficult to drain because there's groundwater constantly pumping up there. But at the headwaters of Long- Lawndale Creek, there's this pool that looks like a geyser. It's, it's crystal clear water. It's about the size of a large living room. And uh, you'll see the groundwater pumping out of the bottom of the pool. And uh, that feeds a cold water stream that's, that's a very diverse stream, has brook trout in it. And uh, um, a, a few miles downstream of that spring, um, it becomes a, a ditch, and uh, a length of that in the Atherton Wildlife Management Area, we restored about three miles of that ditch, uh, working with the ditch authority in diverting that, that stream into a re-meandered channel that we excavated. Um, nice. And it, but, it, but it's a really unique, uh, unique spot on the on Sounds the cool. It does sound cool. I also love that you tied it into your work. So it's like directly related, mm-hmm. as it all is. As we say all the time, conservation is not just a career, it's a lifestyle. Hashtag that, Mike. <laughs> okay, Brooke, give us your places that we're hiking or swimming or fishing or wading. Well, I'm really amazed by the upper part of the Minnesota River Basin. Um, it's just, there's so many intact natural areas, beautiful prairies, these wide, unconfined valleys um, where we have these streams that are uh, very sinuous, and Luther would call them super meanders um, because just these big meanders and small meanders within. Hmm. And I'm thinking of, um, I think it's Lacaparle, WMA, Emily Creek, before it goes to the Minnesota River. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's a nice intact stream, and um, it'd be a good hike. And the other one I have to throw in, too, is just upstream of uh, in Blue Mounds State Park uh, that Sioux Quartzite outcrops and uh, be upstream of where we did the restoration project near the walk-in campsites. Um, my kids love to just jump jump on big rocks across the stream, and it's, it's fun. It's um, more of that riffle system with, with the rock rapid kind of... Um, environment and uh, the Minnesota River has so many amazing um, waterfalls too as it's it's steep when you come into the valley and uh, you know we've got Miniopo, we've got county parks uh, and there was a Gustavus professor that wrote a book about waterfall hikes that you can take in the Minnesota River Valley so that would be one more thing I would recommend. I love it. 
One of the, okay, a brief another side story because uh, this Mike has never heard this story. When I first came and uh, worked, started working at the DNR, uh, my supervisor asked me if I had ever done any waterfall hunting. And I just kind of looked at him and I was like, waterfall hunting? Is that a thing that people do here? I'm, I mean, do, is it like a life list for birds? Like, you write them down. Like, I got Miniopa. I got this county park. I did all of them. I'm just thinking in my head, like, I don't understand, but I like it. I like that people do this here. And then I'm just looking at him confused, and I'm like, oh, that, that sounds cool. I mean, those are pretty. I mean, there's a lot of water there. And then he's looking at me, totally confused look on his face where I can tell we're clearly having a miscommunication. And he just points to a goose on the wall and he goes, waterfall hunting. <laughs> and I go, oh, waterfowl. Yes, that enunciation is more important. <laughs> like, there's a little, I had a little bit of an accent curve there that I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't picking up That's on. hilarious. But to be clear, there is, there are waterfall hunters. Yeah, see, and I didn't know on either account, but it was clear as I was describing this to him that what I was saying when I was like, yeah, they're beautiful, they have lots of water, and he's like, what did he like? Well, they are made mostly of water. (laughs) He's like, um, no. So, anyway, okay. Oh my gosh, I have so enjoyed this time. This is a topic I don't know a lot about, so I feel like every part of it I was learning. Me too. How about you? It's so nice. Yeah, well done, you two. Really, really nice job. As always, you're going to find all of the resources that we talked about today in our Let's Science Entertake Hikes on our website at mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod. This episode was produced by the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Southern Region under the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Partnership. It was edited by Dan Ryder and engineered by Jed Beecher. I don't know what we should do. I wish we had some thought to like put some water in here so we could like splash as our send off or something. Oh, why didn't you think of See, that? See, I know. When we did the muscle one, they like we signed off with Clam Fam. What should we do for you guys? I don't know. Stream team? Dream stream team? <laughs> did you just come up stream with Stream dream team? No, I think that's what they call themselves. The stream dream team. You guys ready? On three? Should we do it? (laughs) (laughs) One, two, three. Stream Stream Dream 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 Dream